Hello, Mark Washbourne here, your host, and welcome to The Ready Podcast. I fundamentally believe that every person with disability can work, and indeed the only thing that separates that from being a reality is access to the support that somebody needs to enable that to happen. I've got a really great guest for you today. I'm talking to the wonderful Wayne Herbert. He's a writer, a speaker, an advocate, and a leader in disability employment. Wayne's going to share his story of living with a disability and how he's learned to use humour to change mindsets. And he really helps us to explore what is possible and ultimately how we can lead to a more just, equal, and fair society. I'm a super fan of Wayne. I hope you will be too. Here's the pod. Wayne Herbert, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the pod. Hello, Mark. Thank you for having me at last. At last. So I think we actually tried to get together during COVID. And of course, we had to, we postponed, I think, twice. It's also been really hard to pin you down because you're rather busy. Absolutely, Mark. I am a, a hard person to pin down. But um, yeah, it's been a long time, but worth the wait. I hope so. I know it will be. Uh, so you've been international globetrotting, I understand. Were you in Canada recently? I was in Canada recently for the third time. I was hosting and speaking at the World Supported Employment Conference in beautiful Vancouver. Let's talk more about that later and what you learned there. I'd really like to start talking about your book. Yes. Which uh, I think came out a while ago now. And the title is Anecdotes of a Disabled Gay, which grabs the attention There's no doubt about that. Tell us what inspired you to write it. You're right, Mark. The title does grab the attention. Um, In 2016, 2017, when I decided to write the book, it was at a time when we were about to go as a nation to the Marriage Equality Survey. And as someone with disability and also as someone who's gay, one of the things that really struck me is that we didn't often talk about the many intersectionalities of people with disability. And we didn't often give people permission to laugh at some of the things that we so commonly say to people with disability without a second thought. And for me, the book was kind of a window to exploring some of that and giving people permission to engage in really important discussions around disability, sexuality, gender and identity, while at the same time as not being afraid to use the wrong word, but an ultimate invitation from me to people to be part of the conversation in a way that I hope uses humour as a powerful mechanism to capture people's attention, not just the title. You do that extremely well. And uh, for anyone who also hasn't seen it, there's a TED Talk, which came after the book, I think. Go to YouTube, Wayne Herbert TED Talks, really, really worth the <laughs> listen. To get a feel for that, using that humour to, to tell these really important stories. And maybe we go back to the beginning, actually. How do you feel that your upbringing shaped your, your views and shaped you, the person you are now? I think it was quite profound. I grew up in a really close-knit family. I grew up in regional New South Wales in a small country town. And I was always told to go out into the world and be who I was, be a good person, do good things, make a lasting impression on the hearts and minds of people, work hard and 
that advice from mum and dad, Judy and Chris, who are probably listening at the moment, who are the reason that I say they won the diversity lottery, they got Wayne, a disabled gay occasional drag queen. Um, (laughs) But they were profound in their support for me living uh, and being true to myself always. And I think, but the experience outside of the family home was sometimes vastly different to that. But I held on to that advice because I think that when you give people the opportunity to hear genuine stories of success and when the focus isn't necessarily on being marginalised or vulnerable, that's not to say that that didn't occur for me, but my family were instrumental in saying that we all have a story to tell, but it's up to you to find your unique way to tell that story, to capture people's attention. So firstly, I'm going to say extremely well done to Judy and Chris. I know, it was a hard job. (laughs) (laughs) Who brought you up extremely well. Were there times growing up where, you know, you felt very different and that maybe, you know, that you weren't going to lead the normal life that you talk a lot about? Mm. I think it it struck me. I grew up the oldest of, uh, I have two younger brothers, although I say I look the youngest. We grew up talking about, you know, all things around the dinner table. We grew up talking about disability. We grew up talking about sexuality, gender, identity. It was part of our everyday family conversation. So at home, I never felt different. I just felt like little average Wayne. And certainly, I think growing up, though, I was the subject of many cruel jokes of bullying discrimination. And so I got a sense from a very young age that I was different, that people were using attributes of me that I saw as my greatest strength or one of many of my greatest strengths as a reason to subject me to some of the most profound levels of violence and discrimination. Um, And as a young person, that's quite confronting to have to be exposed to and deal with. And I think that for me, it was my parents and family's fearless advocacy that didn't see me segregated from my non-disabled peers, but it also didn't see the end to discrimination, bullying and violence. And so that, as a young person, was really hard to confront Mm. and to combat in some ways. But I always held on to the fact that If you allow people into the discussion to understand parts of who you are, that you can, you can do good things. So even as a young person, I thought if I can just help people understand Mm. that tomorrow we could all be a person with disability. I think it's wonderful that you stayed resilient and positive in the face of some of the discrimination and of course through the support of your family, also I think through your intelligence and your thoughtfulness. Going back to the TED Talk, you talk a lot about social labels and you know the problems engendered by putting labels on people. Can you share with our listeners a bit about your thoughts there? I definitely think that social labels are really problematic in so many ways because they often describe singular parts of who you are as a whole person. Yes, it's true that I am a person with disability, but I think I observe in the TED Talk, it's probably on a list of 50 things about me. It probably sits at number 49 or 50. 
I, I'd like people to know other aspects of who I am and who people with disability are in Australia and around the world. But I think it's problematic in the sense that the conversation then stops there. You're a person with disability. Well, yes, but I'm also a university graduate. I'm also an organisational leader. I'm also um, successful and unsuccessful in relationships and make good and bad decisions like everybody else. So for me, they're problematic in that I think they stop or stifle really important, deep conversation for people to think about aspects of who we are as whole people rather than single attributes. Yeah, one thing you talk about is the fact that you strive to, and like everyone else, you want to actually live a really normal life, and sometimes that's surprising to people. Yes, yes. And I think that's because of the ever-present weight of low expectation, yeah. particularly when it comes to people with disability. You know, I remember being told quite often that nobody expects much of you, Wayne. You're a person with disability. Whereas I was always supported by my family and friends to achieve the things that I wanted to set out. Mark, I sit before you today, to be honest, a chronic failure. You know, I've failed at many things. But all of those failures, I think, have been integral in each of my successes and have led me to where I am today. Without the opportunity to fail, I would not have had the opportunity to do the things that I've done. And I think for people with disability, that weight of low expectation, and certainly for me, was certainly difficult to navigate. I'm still confronted by the fact that we underestimate the talent skill and expertise of people with disability. And every day that I have the opportunity to engage in conversation or to be part of an event, I want to be an example of what happens when we as a nation or when we as organisations invest in diversity and inclusion and ultimate belonging and what happens when we invest in the talent, skills and expertise of people, particularly people with disability. Um, and I think as a nation, we all benefit from that. And I think whilst we have much work to do, I just hope I'm but one example of when we do that and we do it right, what is possible. And I hope that I demonstrate to other people with disability that that is possible for them as well. Well, I think you absolutely do. And though you describe yourself in the way that you did, I, I, see, you as, I see you as a global rock star now. A global rock star. Oh, Mark, <laughs> I don't know. I can't sing. Although, <laughs> uh, although auto-tune would, would work wonders. <laughs> I never imagined, to think about that, I never imagined that when I wrote my book or being a delightfully average stand-up comedian or the culmination of my work to stand on the TEDx circle, I never imagined that it would go beyond the walls of the theatre. I never, I just thought this is a great opportunity. The power of TED is amazing. This is fantastic. If this is where it ends, this is incredible. And that was almost six years ago to the day. And you're right, I have since travelled the world uh, several times over and travelled to all parts of Australia, sharing conversations just like this. 
because I think I have a unique way of letting people into the discussion at a really important and watershed moment for our nation, particularly um, given recent days and weeks, particularly with the Disability Royal Commission final report. But I think I never imagined I'd be a global speaker. I've just taken opportunity. I've taken every opportunity knowing that I have important messages to convey, knowing that I want people to also have an opportunity to share their story. So as a leader in the disability community and the LGBTIQA plus community, I want to provide a platform for all people to share their stories and to allow others the opportunity to understand our experiences in the hope that we become a more inclusive, more fair, more just Australia. Beautifully said. You you touched on the Royal Commission and it's they've just completed their work, huge amount of work, and they've handed their down their report and recommendations. Anything that you would highlight from the report that touched you or surprised you? An incredible moment for us as a nation, a watershed moment, if you like, to illuminate the experiences of violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disability in 2023 in Australia. I was lucky enough to be at the final hearing, the closing hearing of the Disability Royal Commission. Mm. And I know that the final report is more than 5,000 pages and more than a million words. What doesn't surprise me is the level of abuse that people with disability experience in Australia and indeed around the world. We know and we have known for many years that that is occurring. But I think what this report does so well is illuminates that for the broader community and says to the broader community that we are all part of the solution here. There are 222 recommendations calling for things like the end to segregated education, which I am proudly on the record of supporting. I think that when we as a nation confront some of the darkest, most difficult experiences of marginalised groups in our nation, we do better. And I think the report is testament to the bravery and to the honesty of people with disability to share their experiences. But it also holds a mirror up to our society and says, what kind of Australia do we want for future generations? And I honestly believe that it ought be people with disability leading these conversations, being at the centre of these Mm. conversations and ensuring that we invest in diverse leadership to implement every one of the 222 recommendations. And I couldn't be prouder of my community. And I know that there are many organisations, families, friends and loved ones who have been tireless in advancing the rights and opportunities of people with disability. But we have much work to do. And I think I look forward to being just one of many people doing that work to make sure 
that for future generations we do better. Yeah, so uh, I've been around the disability employment space for a long time, so I agree it's, it is a very special moment with the report. And just touching on an aspect that you mentioned, which is the segregated schools, sometimes called special schools, it, there wasn't actually necessarily a consensus around that, which is which, you know, was, was a really interesting thing and it's been picked up a lot in the media. And, yeah. and though it, I think, feel that what's come through is that particularly those that are living with a disability have been more forthright to say that, you know, we should have just one school system because by treating people as different, then they will feel that they are less than others and the special schools don't really help and maybe devalue them. Is that is that the, the crux of the issue? I think so, Mark. When I think about it, I think it's a complex issue. Mm. Um, But we all benefit from inclusion. I, as a person with disability, as a member of the LGBTIQA plus community, every one of us benefit from investing in inclusion. What I would say is that when we teach young people from the first day of school that segregating people on the basis of an attribute such as disability is right, fair or justified, says to me that from that very moment we're teaching people that that's okay. Yeah. What I would also say is that inclusion means that we are all safe and respected in all environments. And so we need to think about the cultural shift and the behavioural shift that's needed broadly to make sure that the violence, discrimination and abuse stops in whatever environment people with disability are participating in, whether that be schools, workplaces or just in their chosen communities. But certainly, I'm certainly on the public record of supporting an end to all forms of segregation and I think international research would support that as well. Yeah, some of the statistics and numbers on abuse were shocking and, and quite appalling. I Something that I, I saw Kurt Fernley speak recently. I don't know if you've seen him speak, um, uh, but uh, it was one of the most incredible, it was at a conference, it was one of the most incredible presentations I've seen and I had goosebumps for a lot of the presentation. Wow. And Kurt spoke, much like you actually, that you know, obviously grew up uh, with his, his parents and his family, you know, really, really trying to do everything they could to treat him the same and not to say, no, you can't do this. And the message was that it's actually okay to let people with disabilities try and, and, and that there's beauty in the struggle. Yeah. Such a, such a beautiful message. It made so much sense to me. And I think there is, Mark, because I was, I was always told that I was a person with disability. I have cerebral palsy. We talked openly about it. I spoke from a very young age about it with my peers. It's something that I talk proudly about because I think when we share aspects of who we are, we allow people in to begin to understand our experiences. And I think people with disability have never wanted something different, special or amazing, but just the opportunity to experience equity, fairness, justice, um, the opportunity to experience success, 
um, and to be the best version of themselves. And I think as a nation that when we move the conversation away from one that is often soaked in the deficit model to how do we as a nation invest in all people, including people with disability, so that they have the opportunity to experience success as they wish to in, in their life. And that's all I've ever sought to do. And I think that when we hear the stories of other people, including leaders such as Kurt and others, all people, I think it demonstrates that that investment in me and in my communities is a worthy investment to make. Mm, yeah, totally agree. You, um, you talk about, of course, a lot of your work is about changing mindset, right? And part of that is you use humour to do that, to engage people in the conversation, which I think you do extremely well. Uh, there's some, I think, a heartbreaking and hilarious story you tell about, for example, going to the pub, and uh, which maybe you might share with us. But it, what? how do you think about engaging people and help people to bridge the gap and, and empathise with others, you know, from with different perspectives? One of the things that struck me as a leader in the disability community and in my work was that conversations we would have were often focused on the medical model of disability, often focused so much on how hard things were. And so it struck me in a way that what if people had permission to laugh? What if people were given permission to not diminish the seriousness of mm. some of the discrimination, violence and bullying that I've faced? But what if people, what if people could laugh and ask questions? And so that's certainly how I use humour. In a way, it allows me to disarm the conversation from, as a nation, we perform poorly in so many ways in the underemployment of people with disability, in so many other ways, in poorer social, economic and health outcomes. But if that's all we focus on, people often will go to the problem's too big, what can I do? Whereas if I use humour to break that down, I hope that I bring people in and realise that even incremental change matters and even the smallest of opportunities to engage in conversations matter and that all of us are part of the collective solution. Hmm. And do you, do you feel that, that things are progressing, that there's change? We know, I think, from the Royal Commission that there's an enormous amount to do. You know, do you stay... Do you stay positive and confident about change in the future? Yeah, I do, Mark. And there are, there are a couple of key reasons why. I think we in Australia are the envy of the world. And my work around Australia and internationally tells me that. And we are the envy of the world because we have the, one of the best models of disability employment services in the world. 
um, which I'm proud to work in. But also the National Disability Insurance Scheme is the envy of the world. And for me, the idea is a simple one, that we give choice and control to the very people whom are the direct beneficiaries of the services and supports that they determine they need to live their best life. And to me, that's a significant shift for a lot of people to make. And I know in some parts of the media, it's talked about as expensive, the National Disability Insurance Scheme in particular. But I say now with the final report of the Disability Royal Commission handed down, at what cost for not acting? We have now not only shone a light on the experiences of people with disability, we have illuminated that for our nation and the world to see. And I think the greatest measure of any government or any leader is how you respond how you act to support your citizens and indeed you are marked on what it is you do to advance the rights and opportunities of those people with disability as the report has set out in their recommendations. We will all be part of that and our nation will be looked to for how we respond to that. Well said, Wayne. You mentioned our disability employment program here in Australia. And as well as being an advocate, stand-up comedian, global rock star, your day job, I don't know how you fit it. How do you fit it all in? Let's get to that in a minute, actually. Well, hold that thought. Sure. Let's talk about your day job. Tell us about your role and your leadership and your experience in working in the disability employment sector? So I have the immense privilege. I often say I have the best job in the world. I have the best job in the world, one, because disability employment services gives me the opportunity to see firsthand the transformative difference that a good job and a good career makes in the lives of people with disability whom in Australia and around the world are often overlooked and excluded. And we know and we've heard many times that in Australia, about one in two people with disability are unemployed. To me, that is a great stain on our reputation as a nation. And I get to work in the one program that every day is focused on giving people with disability the right to be recognised for their talent, skill and expertise and the opportunity to see the transformative difference that employment makes in somebody's life but also makes in the uh, work of an organisation is a complete privilege. And so by day, yes, I work as a leader in disability employment services and every day I think that what I do is demonstrate that that's important, that employment for everybody, social and economic participation and the opportunity for people to participate for me in quality employment is integral to so many other parts of one's life. Mm. And I want all people with disability to have that opportunity because I fundamentally believe that every person with disability can work 
And indeed, the only thing that separates that from um, being a reality is access to the support that somebody needs to enable that to happen. And that's where I'm proud Disability Employment Services plays an integral role. Yeah, no, I, I, through the experiences over the years of being in the sector, just having an understanding of how meaningful work, it, it just goes so far towards dignity and, and being purposeful and having hope and mental health and hundreds of other things. You know, the, the richness that comes from work is so important. Absolutely. Um, so can you share with us what's what's going really well in employment services? You know, what are you seeing great things happening with employers who are, you know, working through ways to be more supportive? And then maybe where are the opportunities to do things better so we can grow that participation level? Mm. I think every day, I think the disability employment services sector is one that's committed to continuous improvement and quality service to the people that we have the privilege to work alongside. And if I think about uh, my organisation, I work for an organisation called LEAD. LEAD's an acronym and it stands for, we want people with disability to live the life they choose, experience success but be allowed to fail, access all their community has to offer and develop to become the greatest version of themselves. And I think that exemplifies for me what I get to do every day. I get the opportunity to be the best version of myself. And I want that for every person with disability. And my sector every day works tirelessly to make sure that the economic participation of people with disability is uh, front and centre of what we do. I think our work is to continue to innovate and to be creative. I think if the COVID experience taught us anything about the nature of work, it's that we can make workplace modification at scale if and when we want to. And in fact, during the pandemic, we did that in Australia and around the world. And some of those modifications were things that people with disability had been calling for for decades that were somehow too difficult or impossible. And I think what we've seen is a reimagining of what work looks like. And I hope that that comes into disability employment services, that no longer do we have to work nine to five, like Dolly Parton said. I mean, basically, she's lied to us all these years <laughs> um, because we don't. We can work in different ways. We can work in new ways. And what we know is diverse teams outperform teams that are less diverse. And so I hope it gives us a way to reimagine what employment looks like, what a job and a career looks like, and that we can be agile and move to a modern labour market that isn't one that says a job is eight hours a week and you have to go to an office. Um, you can work from anywhere in the world and you can work in a way that works for you. And I hope that that means that people with disability can be supported by disability employment services to fill some of the uh, skill shortages that they absolutely could if given the opportunity. And what would you say to an employer maybe that's listening that maybe hasn't in the past, you know, given these types of opportunities or employ people with disabilities or 
and other empl- other employers that maybe would like to do more? What what's uh, some advice or message that we'd give to them? I think the wonderful thing about disability employment services is that every day I get to work alongside employers that are doing amazing things. Every day I get as a leader to work with my staff. I get opportunities to engage in discussions about people with disability and the skill and talent they bring to all aspects of work and life and our community. And I think all employers want to do more in the space. Mm. Um, And my work tells me that, that the discussion of the employment of people with disability, diversity and inclusion and belonging is happening in Australia and around the world. And so to employers, I would say thank you. Thank you for investing in the talent of people with disability. But I would also say that conversations about diversity and inclusion need to be an everyday occurrence. They need to be part of the social fabric that is the organisation. That's not to diminish important conversations such as the one we're having today, Mark. (laughs) But if they happen every day, they make organisations and spaces culturally safe for people with disability. They mean that people with disability can experience the same career trajectory alongside their non-disabled peers. It means that a seat at the boardroom table is not the apex of privilege, but the expectation. Because when organisations are making decisions about people with disability and you look around the boardroom table and you don't necessarily see those people represented, I should think that organisations should be very sceptical of decisions that they take at a strategic level. And so for me, it's the opportunity to engage in discussions like this because I want to see people with disability at all levels of organisations, leading organisations, being the centre of the discussion, being at the boardroom table and being part of the change that our country absolutely needs. That was very... That was very statesman-like and answered like the, my three next questions all in one. It oh, was, no. Oh, no, no, in a really, really good way. Oh. In a really, really I, good I way. I I do that. People go, I go to interviews and they go, oh, you've answered my next two questions. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Must be like some sort of mind reading. Sorry about my, that. My mind reading That's why you can't give me the questions in advance. You <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have a couple of surprise probing ones. <laughs> but I don't know. And I go, oh, shit. In preparation for the pod... Uh, as I have started to do, I, I spoke to someone who's close to you to get a bit more of an, oh. a, a deeper understanding of Wayne. <laughs> and I spoke to Rosa. Is she, Rosa's your mentor. Absolutely. Someone you work with, you've known for a while. Uh, firstly, she said that Wayne continues to show up and traverses the globe advocating for people living with disability and against homophobia. And he probably needs a rest now and then to recharge more. Any, any, you have a right to reply. I think um, I would first say that I'm so incredibly indebted to my small circle of friends. Of course, Rosa being one of them, I can certainly reflect that both family and friends have made a really transformative difference in who I am and in my life. I have a small circle of friends. I can name them, Josh, Sean and my sisters. They've all been transformative in allowing me to be at my best and loving me 
when I'm at my worst. And Rosa is right. You might be surprised to find out that I'm an introverted extrovert. And so when you give so much of yourself publicly, as I do, um, there are times where I need to kind of retreat and to take stock of the gravity of what I'm doing and the importance of what I'm doing. But I've been so supported by my family and friends to do that, that I've found my purpose. And whilst I would describe myself as a delightfully average friend, because now I just get asked, where are you? And then I'm like, I'm on a plane or I'm in an airport or I'm in another part of the world. I know that at any given day, that small circle of friends are just a phone call away and I'm forever indebted to them for that. Well, I, I think it's it's courageous, actually, and it's it's brave to keep putting yourself out there. What, Rosa, uh, I said, what do you what do you think I should ask, Wayne? <laughs> oh. <laughs> are you ready? What, ready. Rosa's question that she would like to ask is, do you think that you're an inspiration to others? Um, I think, I hope that what I've done is inspire people to see that the conversation can be had in a vastly different way. Um, so in that sense, yes, I hope I have inspired both people with disability, members of the LGBTIQ community and the broader Australian and, as you say, Mark, global, uh, global world to see that the conversation is a really important one to have and we can have it in different ways. And if I've inspired just one person to share their story, um, then I think my work is done. Nicely said. Very nicely said. I think, I look, I feel that it's on all of us to embrace our fellow human beings as equal and just, just worthy just as they are. So let's hope that message has come across today. I'm going to finish just with a really simple question. What's your hope for the future? Mark, my hope for the future is that we continue to recognise and harness the potential of diversity, that we continue to invest in people with disability, we continue to recognise that we are diverse and that we continue to encourage and inspire people to find their voice. At the closing hearing of the Disability Royal Commission, I had the opportunity to hear poet Andy Jackson, who recently won the Prime Minister's Prize for Poetry. Andy eloquently read two pieces, but there was one particular line that has just sat with me since. And it went something like this. We are not victims of our bodies. We are survivors of the way you treat us. And my hope for the future is that we as a nation think very deeply about what that says about us as a society. And my hope is 
that I continue to lead these conversations and I continue to demonstrate what diverse leadership can and will look like now and into the future. So beautiful, Wayne. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. I salute you and thank you for the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you love Wayne as much as I do. Don't forget to subscribe to The Ready Podcast on your favourite streaming service.